Hi everyone, my name is Allison for Sci Section on CFMU 93.3, and for this week's Scientist of the Week, I'm here with Dr. Michael Thout, Professor of Music, Neuroscience, and Rehabilitation Science at University of Toronto, one of the originators of neurologic music therapy, and just a pioneer in the field of neuromusicology. So thank you for coming to talk with us. Uh, uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, so just to get us started, I wanted to talk about your beginnings, so to speak. I read that you started off as a musician, having toured all over Europe. So what would you say was the best moment of that experience? Well, my actually, my first academic degree was actually in Germany in uh, psychology. Oh, okay. I, uh, I was supposed to study music, but <laughs> I sort of backed out. I thought psychology may be easier than music. So, but anyway, <laughs> once, once I was working on my degree, I started playing basically professional at the same time in parallel. So I knew that I had to go back at some point and actually uh, do all, finish a, a music degree and all those kinds of things. So it's a little bit of a circuitous kind of way. But uh, I did play in Europe professionally for, yeah, I'm, I'm German, so that was my, that was my <laughs> Wow, that's really cool. Um, so yeah, before we dive into your research, Music therapy is still a relatively new field, especially when you add the neuroscience aspect. So for some of our listeners who are unfamiliar with it, can you briefly describe what it is? Uh, well, music, music therapy is, um, has been around in the U.S. since 1950. And, uh, it's been more of an adjunctive kind of... Um, Field definitely soft science, probably still is soft science. Uh, operates more on well-being, emotional, social, emotional concepts. <clears throat> so, uh, my I, I worked on my doctorate at Michigan State. I was a Fulbright student from Germany, and um, I was uh, very encouraged by my mentors in music psychology and music therapy and music theory by the way too to think about ways how to advance the idea of music as therapy not so much music in therapy but music as therapy and so i uh, began sort of a thought process looking at what in so the language of music that I was trained in also as a musician, what are sort of elements, components that could be therapeutic outside of this more global, when I listen to music, it makes me feel good. And uh, something more sort of uh, essential, more core. And uh, one of the things that I, it came to me relatively quickly, I have to say, um, <clears throat> was this personal experience that uh, music consists of a lot of physical training. They learning to become a good musician. There has to be a, a, there is a perceptual motor component to that, in addition to all kinds of, uh, you know, cognitive, emotional, cognitive, aesthetic components. And so there is a very um, strong perception motor component to it. And uh, 
that allows us to actually create some pretty interesting high-level movement experiences. Uh, I play, I'm a violinist, so that's uh, just the coordination of two movements that are very, very different. The right hand does something completely different than the left hand does. In some coordinated fashion with uh, very rapid movements, maybe easier even to visualize as the piano, where you play thousands of indiscreet finger movements in, in minutes. And you can actually remember those. Memorize them. So I thought maybe you can translate that kind of perceptual motor mechanism that helps us to become high-end performers. Turn that around. Are there mechanisms built that also would work for somebody who has lost movement function and needs to retrain and relearn some of that stuff? And so that was really the idea. And so the, I, my minor, a carded minor during my PhD in music was actually in movement science. And I had some excellent teachers over there at Michigan State. And they were very sympathetic to this idea to develop this relatively new idea of perceptual motor strategies in music learning, music training. And so that's actually where this all started. And we started working with mapping function movements on drums to see if the reaching and stretching and coordination would improve with this auditory feedback on the drums and the cues from the music. And then we condensed it in our really first big experiments to this idea of one of what is one of the driving mechanisms in, in uh, music motor learning, which is a rhythm. So that's the timing. Can't time your movements, then uh, <clears throat> you're not going to be a musician. And timing is an essential movement uh, component in all the sports scientists know that very well. And so rhythm is a very peculiar type of timing because it's a sort of predictable cyclical timing process. And so we basically decided we would um, after many years of thinking and trying different experiments, we decided that we would do a rhythm perception study of stroke patients. So walking of stroke patients is the most consistent asymmetric thing you can think of because there's a weak leg and a strong leg. And so there's basically, the, if you translate that into sound, it would be like, a, or durations, it would be a consistent short, long, short, long, and rhythm, a metric rhythm is equal, equal. So that's always the same. So if we ask a, a patient with stroke who works in a short, long pattern to a consistent, let's say, musical beat that is always uh, same, same tempo, same beat. Okay, so let's say it's always uh, long, 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 long long, long, versus short, long, short, long. So now, uh, you have the sensory system, which is the auditory beat, and you have the motor system that says short, long, short, long, and the auditory system says long, 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 long. So what's going to happen? So there's two ways to, you didn't know really what would happen, but either the sensory system, music, changes the motor system 
automotor system ignores the sensor cells and says, I'm just going to walk short, long, short, long, like the typical limb. Right, so that was probably the experiment where we thought we had this all researched and this could really be a design, a study design that could open up the doors or it would close a lot of doors. And the uh, results were very dramatic that there was an almost instantaneous adjustment of these, the people with stroke um, walk to actually become much more symmetric in their walk. And I mean, there are many videos shown in that, and many data and publications. And um, we had published sort of breakthrough studies on that, and then we had a grant to work with Parkinson, works the same way. So there's something universal in this kind of process. So to make this a bigger picture, that was sort of the first time where I think we were able to identify a mechanism in music perception and music production that says that's actually not emotional. It can be emotional, of course, because the patient likes to walk better, but the therapeutic effect was physiological. It was a brain effect. It was not, uh, there's a beautiful piece of music I love, and I try to walk to that. And maybe it distracts a little bit from that. I cannot really walk there. Rather than the music, the element, the rhythmic structure, something in the language, in the syntax of music, the rhythm syntax, changed how the brain planned and implemented movement. So, so that was basically the big step into this whole idea of now let's look at other ways, look at other elements, structures in music. And so we have recently, so we've done this for 25 years, so I've done this for a long time. And this stuff that we done research was really not known. It was not known in Physiotherapy, occupational therapy was also not known in music therapy. It did something. So it was sort of a new kind of thing. So the, an interdisciplinary connection. Here we have brain, we have the music perception, the music cognition, and stuff. And so um, we, first we just did the own research and we presented it at many, many conferences, neuro conferences, World Congress of Neurology, et cetera, et cetera, World Congress of Stroke. And the uh, researchers on, on those meetings, they would actually, uh, we thought we would sort of reject it and uh, pushed out to be not the typical neuroscience group here. And we got actually, uh, the data were really well received and people tried it themselves, it worked. Well, uh, the resistance was more in the area of music therapy. They had different, very traditional ideas of how music therapy should be practiced. So they didn't like this uh, brain stuff, um, um, at least formally they didn't like it. But there were a lot of music therapists, clinicians, that were obviously interested in learning how to do this. And a lot of medical directors and medical researchers said, how can we get people, clinicians trained in that stuff? 
because the traditional music therapist doesn't do that. And the physiotherapists and the occupational therapists, they know pop, they know the rehab part, but they don't know the music part. So we were in a bit of a dilemma. So we gave it what we call neurologic music therapy. So 20 standardized techniques that deal with cognitive rehab through music, language rehab through music, and um, um, movement, motor control rehab through music. And um, that's how that clinical branch became established. And so I don't, I teach therapists and I do research that is translational for the therapists. And uh, we also have in these trainings always people from other professions, physiotherapists, speech language pathologists, neurologists. And so that's how this whole thing evolved. It evolved with a change, I think maybe to summarize that, a change in a paradigm change in terms of how do we look at music as sort of a more cultural phenomenon that has well-being components and that kind of stuff, or is there something in the language or in the syntax of music itself and the structure that can actually uh, help rehabilitate the brain? Wow, that's really fascinating. Um you actually you mentioned that you've done research at like Parkinson's. You um, were at like conventions for stroke. So what is what are you and your research team currently working on? Uh, currently, we just published a paper actually on uh, musical memory and dementia. So we have moved. We sort of worked our way from uh, movement research, which we still do in music, and. A little bit language, not never that much, and now we're doing a lot of also cognitive research. So the last paper we published, I think the last paper, a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, uh, we know that uh, patients with Alzheimer's disease or other forms of dementia and, uh, or minimal cognitive dysfunction, a lot of their musical memories are well preserved. Oh yeah. Although the rest of their memory system is very, very affected, negative. So they don't remember the name, the name of their spouse sometimes, or they don't remember what they did 10 minutes ago. But they can sing lyrics of a song that they've known for 30 years. So that's relatively well documented in the sort of clinical literature, but it very, uh, we are not aware of a whole lot of studies or no studies uh, that have looked at the mechanisms for that. I mean, there's some studies out there. And so we decided that we would investigate that in this two-step study. One is to look at what happens in the brain when these people listen to music that they've known for 20, 30 years. What is the network in the brain that emerges compared to um, listening to music that they've only known for one hour, so like a very short memory phrase. Is there something in that network of structure in the brain that gives us some ideas why musical memory seems to be spared? Therapeutically, I, we thought that would be, uh, could be a useful study because when people with, with dementia types, when they remember music, it's usually also associated with some autobiographical stuff. 
Og var ekki fáverður að hýða því að það var skemmt að þeim sannins. Og that is the song that I met my spouse, or we used to dance to that together. So it usually comes with some kind of memory package that's outside of you. So music sort of becomes sort of a scaffold that carries some of this stuff, and that's suddenly then preserved. And so we thought if we can find, pin down some brain mechanisms, maybe this could be really used in a more focused way to um, restore, maybe more momentarily, or restore some higher recognition orientation to the world, to the environment, and maybe also slow down maybe the decline, which unfortunately we can't reverse in our science. So we found, um, in the first step, we found that there is a huge network distributed across the whole brain when they listen to uh, old music. So it's not just the auditory system, there's a motor system, part regions, there's a cognitive region, prefrontal, executive region. So it's a huge area that is suddenly triggered to become sort of alive in a brain that's usually not very active anymore. And some of these areas that are part of that big network are actually not really affected by the disease. So that's, there is a survival component, a sparing component in that network, compared to this other network that's like the one hour in the network, which is very, very small. So that's, uh, that's one of the things that we have another, the second part of the study, um, wrapping up right now and submit that very soon where we had people listen to music for three to three or four weeks on a one hour a day. We had a playlist for them and they were sort of focused listening, engaging in conversations, spouse, caregiver, family. And they actually there were changes in the brain after this four week listening program. And there were also changes on some neuropsychological tests where they improved on the memory score, which is pretty unusual because, uh, unfortunately, patients with this kind of illness don't really improve. One of things we're working on, we're also looking at Parkinson. We don't really do um, clinical research anymore because we know they walk better, they move better. As we have published so many papers in that we also we are looking also at mechanisms, so we actually have at the University of Toronto, we have a very specialized neuroimaging center where we can actually do uh, image neurotransmitters. Okay. So we're not imaging regions of the brain, like fMRI, where you look at certain parts of the brain. We're looking actually at neurotransmitters in the brain. Very, very different kind of imaging. So we look at dopamine because that's the uh, culprit, so to speak, the reduction, the depletion of dopamine in the brain of somebody with Parkinson's disease creates all these movement issues. And since they move better with music and rhythmic cues, we like to find out is there an effect of music and rhythm on the dopamine system. So that's sort of the key system. So we're imaging neurotransmitter 
um, release in the brain. So that's very fascinating. And um, you have a lot of studies. We're working with cochlear implants, retraining of auditory speech perception. We finished a study with uh, stroke patients practicing their motor coordination and their weak arms playing musical instruments. Um, percussion instruments, obviously not the violin, but percussion. Uh, we're preparing some work with autism. Uh, so there's a lot of things we're doing. And uh, I've been at the University of Toronto for four years now, um, four and a half years, and so it's been a very, very productive. Very good work. <laughs> well, we're actually, we're running out of time now, but really quickly before I finish off, um, do you have any piece of advice for somebody who's trying to get into the same field as you? Okay, um, that's always a very difficult question. Uh, but it's, it's a, since you have to weave together different strands of training and expertise, there's not one program that says, okay, here is the neuroscience of music program. You have a PhD here in music neuroscience, but it's still also, it's in music, but it's also interdisciplinary. So if you come, if you have mus uh, musician training, uh, psychology training, neuroscience training, uh, just get started somewhere. Okay, go to a neuroscience program and you are a musician, so maybe get double major. Okay, uh, so the kind of, it's, a, it's more of a slalom. Or, increasing integration of different strands of, uh, of knowledge and, and expertise. So it'll take a few years if you're interested in that, um, but it can be done. I mean, there are places in the world that actually have music neuroscience research centers. We are probably the most clinical translational research oriented center in the world, but there are other ones just up the road here in Montreal is a great uh, music neuroscience research center, Brahms University of Montreal, but it, it's a distributed uh, and you probably find much more openness to this idea than when I started working on this um, 30 years ago. So you find in your university, you may find somebody in neuroscience or somebody in psychology or somebody in music theory or music psychology. That's interesting. In uh, helping, helping. But as I said, we have a master's and we have a PhD in music and health science here. Yeah? And so that's definitely a place you can look at and talk about. Well, um, thank you so much, Dr. Taut, for taking the time and like telling us all about it. It was really interesting. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks. I've talked to you too. Yes, and for our listeners, thanks for listening. Make sure to check out our podcast available on global platforms for the la latest SciSection interviews.